Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Alrighty, welcome back everybody. I wanted to first start by addressing that this channel has been growing like crazy. We've had almost 100 new subscribers just from the previous video, uh, just the past couple days. We've had a lot more viewership. I don't want to go into all the analytics, but we've had a lot of growth in this. And so I wanted to first welcome everybody that's new to it and just give you a short recap of what this whole thing is about. So what you're looking at is a broker, a platform called M1 Finance. But what this is more importantly is a dividend growth portfolio. If you're not familiar with what dividend growth is, it is an investing strategy where instead of looking at the capital appreciation of a company, meaning the price of the share of a company, you look to have your dividends and the amount that you're getting paid out in dividends grow month over month and year over year. That is your primary focus. The capital appreciation, those are all secondary focuses. So I'll give you an example of this. A typical strategy, you take a company like Netflix and you'd say the price is $356. You'd look at the PE ratio, you'd do your due diligence and research. And your big objective with a growth strategy is to say, I'm going to buy at this price, 356. And in X amount of months or X amount of years, I think it will be worth this price, which is always more. I think in five years, Netflix is going to be worth more. So you would buy this company. And then when you think that it has reached its peak value, you sell it. And that is a typical growth strategy. Now, dividend growth varies from that greatly because the capital appreciation, which is your market gains, the value of a share is not your primary focus. Your dividends and the cash flow you're getting from them is. Let's take a look at how I keep track of this. So if I go over to this little graph I made here on Google Spreadsheets, this is a graph of how much money I've been paid out in dividends every single month since starting my portfolio. And you see that it started with zero when I just bought into these companies. Then they started paying dividends. And what this is called is growth. And you see a clear trend line of growth. As I've been purchasing shares, there's really, there's three ways that your dividends grow. And that's by adding more money and purchasing more shares. That's by the dividends being reinvested and purchasing more of their own shares. And that's by the companies themselves increasing the amount they pay in dividends year over year. And those three different ways are, are all three different ways that this amount compounds and grows over time. This is the primary indicator I look at. The amount of capital appreciation, that is a factor, but that's secondary. You want to push that out of your mind if you're doing this strategy. Focus on the dividend growth and the idea being that the capital appreciation will follow. So that is what this channel is about. Now, I come out with a video at least once a week. I give you updates on it, but I also share my thoughts on other topics that I think are interesting and topical that have to do with investing. And so I'm going to do that today. I have some thoughts on Elizabeth Warren's plan to break up big tech companies. So I'm going to be commenting on that as well as the problems that Boeing has been having lately. And then I'm going to go through and answer a bunch of questions on the previous video. We had a lot of good questions from people that watched the previous video. So first of all, let me give you a portfolio update. So if I go back to week view, we've had a lot of gains through capital appreciation, 0.89. 
And if I look at it, most of it comes through real estate because that's my biggest share. But I've seen it in overall in the market has gone up in the past week. Earned dividends, the amount that I earned this week is only $3.84. But let's look at a little bit bigger of a timeline. So if I go to the one month here, $118 in earned dividends. So now I'm getting to the point, I've never had a payout of an entire month that's over $100. $92 is the max. But I'm having lots of months now where my earned dividends is $118. And this number is different than this one. This is when you're paid. This is when you earn it. And it's like working at a job. You get your paycheck later than earning it. But with stocks, it's usually like four to six weeks instead of a two-week period. So this $118 that I've earned in the past 30 days, this will be paid out in four to six weeks. And it's just... Month over month, that's how it works. So when you buy new shares, which I've added a lot to this portfolio over the past few months, there's a laggard effect. It takes it takes about a month and a half before you start really feeling the effects of those new shares that you bought. So I'm expecting and predicting that over the next few months, my dividend payments are going to break that 100 mark. So I think they'll start to consistently break that 100 mark when we get to the second half of 2019 or even just close to it. Because I've seen a lot of 30-day periods where we're earning over $118. As far as I can go back and look at the activity statement here, this page just shows me a rundown of the specifics of what's happened and the dividends that I've been paid, deposits, that type of thing. So let's look at the pending activities. You can see I have $9.78 in cash. And if I go here, I can see where I got this $9.78 from. So I had a little bit of cash left over and then $9.41 is from these companies that just recently paid dividends. So Chevron and United Technologies and Target and Exxon and Amgen, all of these just paid dividends today. And that, that equaled this number here. The reason that it wasn't invested today is because on M1, the minimum amount to buy shares to execute the trading algorithm is $10. So we're just shy of that $10. So once I either add more money myself or I get paid more in dividends to get over $10, then it will purchase it. With M1, you it has the capability of buying fractional shares, which is, it works exactly how it sounds. You just buy a percentage of the share, and you get a percentage of the dividend and percentage of the ownership. So it has the capability of doing that, and that's how you're able to invest $10 and buy multiple companies. Now, the amazing thing about having this type of portfolio is the amount of frequency of reinvestment and compounding you get. You can look at this. Dividend 11 days ago, dividend 8 days ago, dividend 6 days ago, dividend 5, dividend 4, and then dividends today. All the time I'm getting these these payments and all the time they're being reinvested. That's what I love about this type of investing. So having said that, I, I'll give another recap when we have the full week at the end of the week. But I wanted to go over Elizabeth Warren's plan. So she did this. Let me go over to it here. So Elizabeth Warren, she came out with this plan about a week ago, and I had a chance to read over it. And I, I know she's, I know she's a, a politician, and she's a candidate. She, I think she's running for president. This show, I don't want it to be political. I don't want it to be about politics. There's plenty, of, there's plenty of YouTubers out there that will tell you who to vote for and what candidate's good and bad for all the various reasons. I don't want to do that. So I'm probably more on the conservative side than her, but... The specifics of what I want to go over is her actual plan as if it came from anyone. So I wouldn't care if it came from her or Marco Rubio or anybody else. I just want to take a look at it and give you my input after I had time to to read through it. So 
If you're not familiar with it, if you had a chance to read to it, pretty much what she wants to do is break up what she believes are these giant controlling tech companies that have way too much power and they leverage their power to unfairly compete and crush smaller businesses. And like I said, I'm, I might be on the more conservative side, but she, I think, brings up some very valid points. And what I wanted to do is go through and highlight what I think are the strongest points she brings up. So the argument for it, and then I wanted to bring up what I believe is the strongest argument against it. So first of all, let me go through. She makes two major suggestions for legislation here. And so let me go through the first one. It's way down. You have to go through right here. So this is where it gets into the good part, about halfway through the post. And she prefaces it by giving some historical context and precedent of how they've broken up other companies and stuff in the past. Let me start reading here. There's, there's three paragraphs where I believe that are very, very core to what she's doing. So to st restore competition, she says, first, by passing legislation that requires large tech platforms to be designated as, quote, platform utilities and broken apart from any participant on that platform. So what she's suggesting is any company that creates a platform can't be a participant on that platform. So she goes on and says companies with an annual global revenue of 25 billion or more, which that is right at the breaking point as small cap companies about 10 billion or less. So that's pretty much any big company, any just medium sized to big company, 25 billion or more. And that offer a public and online marketplace, an exchange, or a platform for connecting third parties would be designated as platform utilities. These companies would be prohibited from owning both the platform utility and any participants on that platform. Platform utilities would be required to meet a standard of fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory dealing with users. Platform utilities would not be allowed to transfer shared data with third parties. So just in these three paragraphs there is a tremendous amount of impact that would have on large companies. And I mean a game-changing, company-changing, tremendous impact. So to give you an idea of what that would mean is that if you were shopping on Amazon, they could not sell the Amazon Basics value. If you're shopping on Apple's App Store, Apple couldn't advertise their own products on it. If you're on Salesforce, Salesforce's App Store, Salesforce wouldn't be able to create their own apps on it. The other one that they name off is, is Facebook and these other companies. And this is just one part of her, her legislation that she's promoting. Now, I wanted to first start by the argument for this and the parts where I actually agree and in, in the, in the concerns that she's bringing up and the way that... Amazon uses its advantage, leverages its advantage to crush other competing businesses and small businesses. Now, I had a video that talked about this principle before, but it's called Moat. And pretty much any time a company can use the tools that it has to keep other competitors from encroaching in, that's a moat. These companies have these platforms and this information, and they use that to their advantage to create a moat where intruders cannot get in. Now, let me show you an example of this. Let's pretend for just a second that you're a small business owner, that you came out with a diaper store where you're manufacturing these really awesome diapers. Now, the problem is, is if you ever become big enough selling diapers, eventually you're going to need to sell it online. Well, the place that a lot of people in the U.S. shop online is Amazon. So if you ever want to be really big and take advantage of the full market of the U.S., you have to use Amazon's platform. If you don't, you're literally saying, I don't want about 30% of the online sales in the U.S. And it's always growing. They're always taking a, a bigger and bigger share of those online sales. So that's what you're saying if you don't. So you're stuck in this hard position. Do I sell on Amazon? 
and let them take a percentage of it? Or do I sell it myself and I have a smaller percentage of the pie? Now let's take a look at what happens if you decide to sell on Amazon. So let's go to Amazon here and let's search diapers. Now this is just Amazon Live. I'm searching it right now. And you might have some things come to your attention right away. You have all these different brands and then you have Amazon's right there, the Mama Bear diaper brand. And it, notice how it's super cheap, eight bucks while all of these are like 30 bucks. The, the count might be a little bit less, has great ratings. They're able to push their product right here again for, for more of them. They're able to push their product right on the front row anytime they want. And there's more to it than this. So again, let's pretend that you're this diaper company. You put your diapers on Amazon. And let's say that you have some game breaking type of diaper. You put up 10 of them, 10 different products. And one of them happens to sell really, really well. Well, Amazon, being the owner of this platform, having access to all the analytics, they know how many times you click on a product, how many times that you look at the images on it, how many times you read the reviews on it. They know how many times every single one of these sell. So if one of them is doing particularly good, they can analyze the reasons to exactness of why that product is doing particularly good. They can dissect all of it, and then they can create a competing product where they have huge connections with China and other manufacturers to drop the price. They can copy it with an incredible level of accuracy, the things that made your product sell well, they can copy all those aspects. They can forget about all the aspects of the products you have that don't sell, sell well, and they can offer their Amazon brand. And they do that by leveraging the amount of analytics and data that they can gather by you participating in their store. So the other option, like I said, is to not sell on Amazon store. And you protect some of your analytics from that, right? But even then, even if you don't sell on Amazon store, they still have Amazon web services. So if you have a large company, they still can gather analytics through what websites are getting lots of clicks and lots of conversions and people coming back for more. And they can even get analytics on that. So there's a ton of ways that Amazon is able to take advantage of people in all different industries, offer their own custom label brands, and they can outcompete them like crazy. So when Elizabeth Warren is talking about the unfair advantage that they have, it's honestly true. They, they, Amazon has a totally huge advantage when they're competing with other people selling on their store. When I go to Amazon and I see the Amazon value brand, it's almost always cheaper. The quality is almost always the same as all the competing ones. So there's no reason to buy anything else. So it's better for the consumer, but all these other competitors that helped create Amazon's brand, they end up getting hurt by it. So when Elizabeth Warren is talking about the unfair competitive advantage, Amazon certainly has that. But that, again, that is only one part of it. Uh, it she also goes on to do another really, really big uh, suggestion. So let me go down to part two of her plan. So she, the first part, like I said, is she wants to make it so that they can't be a participant in their own platform, which in, in and of itself would be a enormous change to the way that virtually all of our big companies operate. Even whether it's it's Amazon or Apple or Facebook, you could also apply that to anything. Like you look at Salesforce and they have an app store and they have lots of their own apps on their app store, they would be restricted from having their own app on their app store. And that isn't where she stopped with this. So she brought in another part of it that I think is probably equally as disruptive to the tech world or wherever the applies to as the first part. 
So right here, she says, second, my administration would appoint regulators committed to reversing illegal and anti-competitive tech mergers. Current antitrust laws empower federal regulators to break up mergers that reduce competition. I will appoint regulators who are comp who are committed to using existing tools to unwind anti-competitive mergers, including Amazon, who owns Whole Foods and Zappos, Facebook, WhatsApp and Instagram, and Google, Waze, Nest, and DoubleClick. Unwinding these mergers will promote healthy competition in the market, which will put pressure on big tech companies to be more responsive to the concerns, including about privacy. So my thoughts on this are that I don't think that this would be a good disruption to the tech industry. If you look at Facebook, part of the reason that a lot of people are invested in Facebook right now is their path for growth. If you look at just facebook.com, they're pretty much maxed out. Almost everybody on earth has an account and all they can do is try to monetize those users more and more. Now, if they have a way to acquire other companies like Instagram, they have a growth path that allows their company to continue to grow and expand without putting so much pressure on their current users to try to monetize those current users. Instagram has been an incredibly good acquisition for Facebook. I know that if they were to split up, Facebook would be really hurt by that. That's probably one of the best acquisitions in all of the tech world. And Amazon is using Whole Foods as part of expanding to local stores. They're also going to be coming out with their Amazon Go stores everywhere. And so this would be highly disruptive to that if you say Amazon just has to stick to their online store. So I don't think that it's a good thing to split up these companies as far as the to reduce competition. My biggest concern... I see her point in saying that these companies are difficult to compete with. They have tremendous advantages with how big they are that they can leverage. So I actually agree with her on that part. The issues that I see, the biggest concerns I personally have is that Amazon and Facebook and Google, they are not just competing with American companies. They are competing with the whole world. I don't want to restrict and hurt the best American companies that we have currently to compete against India to compete against China because they're not going to restrict their companies in the same way. And if Amazon can't have a path to grow, if Facebook can't have a path to grow, if we just say this is the max a company can get, I believe that that there are going to be big companies, but they won't be American ones. And so that's one of my biggest concerns is although it might make it easier for Americans to compete with these companies, I also think that deliberately restricting them in such a drastic way will also make it easier for Europe and India and Asia and all different markets to compete with them. So I think that's a significant downside that she's not taking into account. So I think that in each of these situations, there's lots of competitors to each of them. To Whole Foods, there's tons of food competitors. To, to Instagram, we've seen over and over again, new social networks come up and go away. And to, to Google Waze, Nest, and DoubleClick, I mean, there's there's so many different alternatives to Maps and Nest's products that they have home monitoring and, and DoubleClick. There's lots of competitors to each of these. The life cycle of big tech companies is also not that long. I mean, if you look, it seems like they're, they can never go away. It seems like they're too big. But if you look over a longer history, Microsoft used to be overwhelmingly in control of everything. Now these ones come up and Microsoft is not even mentioned here. You look at uh, Oracle, you look at IBM, these companies that were just the leaders in the world and now they're kind of an afterthought. They're old news, they're dinosaurs that they have some good products, but these are the new interesting companies that come up. The part of her whole thing that I agree with the most, that I see the most valid concerns with are this first part of how difficult it is for newcomers to compete with it. If you're a new diaper company and you come out with something revolutionary that is a better diaper overall, Amazon will immediately copy what you're doing, 
sell it for cheaper and promote it to the front of their page and crush you. And so that's a real concern, but that's not unique to the tech world either. So they companies have been doing that forever. So I hope that gives you an idea into what this is. I, I think that this would be really difficult to to get done and that I don't really know what the outcome of this would be. I don't think anybody knows how how much of a drastic change this would be to our overall economy with breaking up the companies in this suggested way. But I know it would be a huge transition if, if anything like this ever happened. Um, in other news, Boeing has not been having a good week. They had their second plane, the 737 MAX, crash in a fatal accident within six months. So this is the same type of plane within a six-month period. They've had two of these planes crash, one of them killing 157 people, one of them killing 189 people. And now this is a, an awful tragic thing to see that Boeing is, has had these planes. But the thing that's most jarring about this whole story is that the FFA says it does not see a reason to ground these planes. And Boeing doesn't either. They both come out saying that they believe that they're safe. And so I don't agree at all with their decision, Boeing's decision to keep these planes on. I know that they have profit margins. They don't want have people to be scared of them. But the truth of the matter is they have no idea why these planes crashed. So they don't have any idea. There's there's ideas that it was the software in the plane. There's ideas that it was the pilot's fault of not having training well. And they really haven't gotten to the bottom of it. So they're still analyzing it. And I'm pretty surprised that both Boeing and the FAA thinks it's okay to continue flying these planes before an investigation has been complete. So their stock, Boeing's down. Boeing is down pretty significantly over the past, let's see, the one-month period. So if we go to year-to-date, you can see Boeing was doing well, and then they're they're down pretty significantly over the past few days. So 14.6%. I think that their stock will continue to drop until this gets resolved, but I think they shouldn't complete an investigation of why this is happening before they allow more people to fly in these planes. You can even look at it and look at this story. Flight attendants urge carriers to ground the Boeing 737 MAX planes after the crash. And I'd be totally on board with them. If I was a flight attendant and I had to fly in one of these planes, I would not want to do that. So the these airlines said you don't have to fly in these planes. And I don't think I would until this investigation was completed. So I totally think that's reasonable to not want to have to fly in a plane that you've had two accidents within six months. Now, having said that, there's obviously, I mean, at any given time, there's like 10,000 planes in the air. So it still is an infrequent thing. There's like 400 of these 737 MAX flights a day, and two of them have crashed in the past six months. But the amount of lives lost, over about 300 lives, is an amazing amount of lives lost. If you look at any other tragic event or like terrorist attack, you know, a couple dozen will make tons of news for a year. And so there's been 300 people killed, and I don't think they should risk it. If Boeing does have one of these crashes in the U.S., I think the stock will absolutely tank. So so I have Boeing as one of my holdings. If I can go here into industrials, I believe it's industrials. And it's my top holding up there in industrials because I've said in weeks past that I think Boeing is a, a pretty fairly safe bet just with the amount of orders they have, with the backlog that they have, and the, the kind of monopoly they have. They're a pretty safe bet of a company to buy into. Now, Having said that, if they have continued crashes with their planes, I could see that as being a, something that affects their stock long term. Boeing really needs to avoid having another crash here or their stock is going to tank, especially if it's in the U.S. I think it will be drastically bad. I'm surprised they're taking the risk of still flying these planes, but I wish they wouldn't. As far as the stock, I'm going to continue holding it. I don't really sell or buy stocks based off of the current day fluctuation. So 
I'm I'm still up 12% over it. So I've owned Boeing for a while, but it's still a small percentage of my portfolio. All right. So moving on from that, I wanted to go over and address some of your guys' questions from last week. So Greg says, thanks for another thought-provoking video. It'll be interesting to see if Walgreens suffers some collateral damage, i.e. lawsuits from their association with Theranos. It's a warning to check what kind of acquisitions the companies are pursuing. So he is exactly right. And if you're not, if you're not, don't know what we're talking about. The last episode, I you can watch that. It has me going over the Theranos relationship with Elizabeth Holmes and how they put their inaccurate testing machines, their blood machines, into a lot of like 40 different Walgreens stores. And many people had tests done that were inaccurate and that caused a lot of stir. So if I go down into this article, Walgreens is being sued. Walgreens did sue Theranos, first of all. They they sued Theranos and they settled for, I believe, like 30, 40 million dollars, but they're being sued by different people for having these machines in their stores that people used and got inaccurate results. One woman says she claims that Theranos' inaccurate result indicated that she tested positive for an autoimmune disease that prompted her to consult with a doctor and check for food allergies. After she was tested from another lab, her doctor determined that she did not have the autoimmune condition. So I believe that they're going to win some money on these lawsuits. They certainly have grounds to. Now, I will say, I don't think this is going to be devastating to Walgreens because the amount of damage that they sue, even if it's in the millions, that's going to be pocket change. Walgreens already lost, I think, $100 million with their relationship, their investment into Theranos. So I think they there will be outcome of this, but it's mostly going to be bad press over the actual amount of money that they're being sued by these patients. Next question. Dragon Lee says, another great episode here. Can you tell us which three stocks are in your conviction buy list, even if the market tanks 25%? Lastly, what do you think of Carl Icahn's investment strategy, Activision, and corporate governance? Thanks for the thoughts. So I went through and thought of my three conviction buy list. The first one I have is Costco. The, the reasons I'll go through real quick. I think that they vet the quality of the products that they put in their store to a, a really high, high quality. So they do a really good vetting process. They target their stores in areas with homes that have high, high employment rates and they're, re- uh, they're recession resistant. They have a low attrition rate on their memberships, meaning most of the people that sign up with their memberships end up keeping them. They have a high pay and quality treatment for their employees. They don't really have a threat with minimum wage because they already pay their employees so much. They're one of the few companies that I believe is resistant to Amazon and online retail attacks. And they have an incredible return policy that makes it more more convenient to return items from their store than Amazon or anyone else. I think if they keep what they're doing, the recipe I believe they have down is really good. I think if they just keep doing what they're doing, they're going to be a solid company. They're also a good dividend payer. They're not the fastest growing company, but it's one that I could see myself owning for the next 40 years. So that's the first one. The second one is Dominion Energy. They're a government-regulated company. They have an absolutely impeccable growth, dividend growth history. They have a high starting yield. They had a 10% dividend increase last year. They've had pretty quality management for the, a long time. They haven't had any huge problems that have caused their stock to, to tank at one time or another. And they're utilities, so they have the effect of being a monopoly. So I don't have an option of what other utility company I can go to. So to me, they just fit as a, a great dividend growth and investing company that I plan on owning for a very long time. Third and final one is Realty Income Corporation. They're my biggest holding in my portfolio. They have a pretty solid business plan for growth. They invest in in high quality, standalone real estate, commercial real estate. And they've had like 40 consecutive dividend increases. 
They pay monthly, which is another thing. And they're they're not the highest yield. I actually I think they're a little expensive right now. So I'd wait until their their yield is like over five percent to buy them. But I just believe they're a super solid company. I really like their their business plan and what they've done, and it's worked out really well for the past thirty years at least. Next question is Linda K. How much do you receive in dividends per month? Have you? Um, I have over fifty seven thousand in the market. Nice. And sixty percent are growth dividends, and forty percent are high risk to medium growth. So she has a mix of of growth ones and then higher risk ones. I've never had so if I look at this graph, like I said, I've never had a payment over a hundred dollars. I'm hoping to get there soon. There's a laggard effect. So I've put in enough money that even at a four percent yield, I should be getting over a hundred bucks a month on average. So I expect to see that soon. But right now you can see the trend. This is how much I'm getting every single month. I expect that this trend to continue. Next question. And he says, with the possible housing market crash coming, are you going to lower your percentage in REITs? I don't plan to. So I know the the housing market can crash and and do the same thing that it did before. REITs got pretty hurt in the last housing market crash, but so did everything else. I mean, you weren't safe in equities. They dropped down 50%. The housing market got pretty hurt. Most of REITs that I'm invested in are commercial. They're not residential. So the subprime mortgage crisis was a residential issue that had drastic effects on other markets, but it it was primarily a residential issue, not a commercial one. If I look at the most of the REITs I had, most of them didn't have too big of issues. Their value dropped like everybody else, but they were still solvent. So you look at Realty Income Corp and their their occupancy rate only dropped to 96% when they averaged like 98%. So I plan on still holding it. I know that 33% is unorthodox. That's more than what most people have in REITs, but I think uh, I, I like the strategy of having 30, one third of my portfolio in real estate. So that is going to be all of it for today. I hope you guys continue having a good week. And if you want to dive in more to the tactics, specifically that Amazon uses, I think this is a fun thing. This, uh, this comedian, his name's Hassan Minaj, and he has a show called The Patriot Act. I think it is mostly a liberal-leaning show, so you're going to get that perspective in it. It's similar to John Oliver, where he comments on political topics and mixes entertainment in with it. So I recommend to check out the Amazon episode. It really shows uh, what Amazon's able to do and how vicious they are with it. Well, I will leave you with that, and I hope you guys have a good rest of the week. I will talk to you next time. See ya.